Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29 while you're turning there. People will often ask me, you know, Pastor Jeff, you're kind of a, a rabid supporter of Israel. You, you, you are constantly talking about why the church uh, should support Israel, why we should be concerned about Jerusalem, why we should care about the Jewish people. Uh, and there are two primary trains of thought within Christendom. One uh, would be what is no, known as replacement theology. The church has effectively replaced uh, Israel and God's done with them and you know, we're, we're just kind of all in this thing together. And while it is true that everyone who comes to faith in, in the Lord comes to faith in Christ Jesus, and so in that sense there are Jews and Gentiles all blended together in God's family, but the Bible plainly says that there's another view, and that view is the one that I believe is the correct one, the one that we hold here in this church, and that is God has a plan for national Israel. And that that plan is to redeem them and that a vast majority of the prophetic word of God uh, that we read today that was written in some cases more than 3,000 years ago pertains to the children of Israel and what God will do with them in the very last days. And that is certainly true here in chapter 29 as we continue this little mini-series, The Woes of the World. The things that will burden the world, the things that will be a weight to the world. And before we dig into chapter 29, uh, I point you to Zechariah's prophecy. Now, Zechariah writes about 150 years after the prophet Isaiah, so he's writing in roughly 520, 530 B.C. Isaiah's writing in 686 or so. And so these two prophets, separated by 150 years, um, amazingly write some very, very similar things. And in fact, Zechariah fills in some details, but understand that even as Zechariah writes, Zechariah is still writing a half a millennia before Jesus is born, before Messiah will actually set foot on the earth. And it says there in Zechariah 12, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. And thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. So God's taking credit through the prophet Zechariah for creating man and holding all things in his hands. He stretches out the heavens. He laid the foundation of the earth and he formed your spirit. If you're alive tonight, the spirit of the living God in you, if you know the Lord Jesus, is there because God put it there. Behold, verse 2 says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. And the reason this is important is what is said next. For I will lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Interesting. So the prophet 
Zechariah, after Assyria has already come, Babylon is the power of the day during that time. Verse 3 says, and it shall happen in that day, a familiar phrase to us who've been studying through the book of Isaiah, if you've been with us in any of our prophetic studies in that day, referring to that day and time that the Lord will finally finish up his age of grace and, and finally move in the nation Israel, that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people, circle it, all people. Not just the Jewish people, not just people in the Middle East, but all people. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces. In other words, all who would attempt to get rid of Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, will be cut to pieces in that day. And though all nations of the earth are gathered together against it, underlying that part, there's going to come a period of time when the entire world is going to rise up against the nation Israel. Now, it seems almost inconceivable. Because when you look at Israel, yes, it's a powerful nation, a very powerful nation for its size. But it nonetheless is a nation of about 9 million people total. Uh, there are a little over 40 million people in the state of California. So it would be one quarter, a little less than one quarter of the size at least in population in the state of California, and by geographic area, it would be one-hundredth the size of the state of California. Tiny, tiny nation. But it says that all the nations of the earth are eventually going to rise up against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion. It speaks of war now with madness, and I'll open my eyes on the house of Judah and strike every horse and the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah will say in their heart to the inhabitants again of Jerusalem, who are my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. For in that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile, like a fiery torch in sheaves, and they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your plans that are still yet future for the Jewish people and specifically for Jerusalem. Lord, you have a plan to redeem, to save. The Apostle Paul made it clear that one day all Israel, not, not Gentiles, but all Jewish Israel, his brethren as he called them, would be saved. And so, Lord, we pray as we read your word tonight, as we study it, that we'd be encouraged and strengthened, and that we would know what the will of the Lord is with regard to these days in which we live. We truly believe, Lord, that you're in control of all things, not just this virus that has us locked down, but you're also in, in control of the entirety of all of humanity, the earth itself, the moon, the stars, the universe that you flung into space. And so, God, we pray that you'd speak to us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Notice verse 1 now in Isaiah 29. Woe to Ariel. Now, that's not uh, one of the moons of Uranus. It was discovered in 1851. That's not uh, William Shakespeare's airy spirit in the tempest. That's not John Milton's evil angel. That's certainly not the mermaid in The Little Mermaid, okay? Ariel is actually a code name 
And it is a code name because we're told where it is to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. If you travel to Israel today, one of the excavations that's ongoing and has been ongoing uh, since the mid-1800s is the city of David. That is the location of Zion. It's the ancient city of Jerusalem. If you look at Jerusalem today on a map and you look at the old city, the old city walls that are around the city of Jerusalem, though they are built on part of the Herodian walls, the walls of Herod's time, the walls that are there are primarily Ottoman walls that were built in the 1500s. But beneath them are the old city walls, and beneath them are the, the old Temple Mount. And so what you see today is a much larger area uh, for the Temple Mount than the whole city of Jerusalem, the city of David, Ariel, was during the time that Zechariah wrote his prophecy and Isaiah prophesied of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a little, tiny community on the southern slope uh, of this hill called Zion. Uh, and so, add to year to year, let the feast come. Uh, and so, this code name, because we're told it's a city where David dwelt, that's where David dwelt, was in Jerusalem. And so it goes on, and in verse 2, uh, we're going to see now how God is going to use this description of Israel in the very last days, and why it ties into what we read in Zechariah's prophecy, that Israel itself will one day become a burden to the entire world. For those of you interested in such things, if you uh, go to the records of the UN and you look at what the UN has debated over its history, you're going to find out that tops on the list of all nations that have had injunctions written against them, have had laws passed against them, have been chastised and been spoken of on the floor of the UN in a negative way, the top of the list is not China, it's not Russia, it's not the U.S., it is Israel, and it is ongoing to this day. And our Bibles remind us in Ezekiel 38, in fact, that exactly what Zechariah says will happen, one day the entire world will rise up against a single nation. The good news is that's still future. The good news is it hasn't happened yet. The good news is that one day... Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take care of that battle that is raging against his people in Jerusalem himself. But it does give us a sense of why we need to be supporters of Israel and why we need to be caring about what happens in the Middle East. Because it is a precursor, it's the time clock, it's the thing that we look at as believers and go, the closer the end gets to God dealing with national Israel, the more that the world hates Israel, the more that there is turmoil in Jerusalem, the closer we are to going home to see the king. Now, I don't know about you, that would be a great end to the COVID pandemic. Amen? The rapture would definitely fix that for those of us who know the Lord. And so verse 2 goes on to say, uh, here in the 29th chapter of Isaiah, Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, 
and it shall be to me as Ariel. Now, it's really important. Notice what God's saying. He's saying, I'm not actually really fond of this happening to my people, not to the city of David, not to Jerusalem, not to the Jewish people. It actually distresses me the same way it distresses them. It is heaviness on the Lord that this will ultimately have to happen. But we're going to see that there's a reason for this. I will encamp against all around And I will lay siege against you with the mound, and I will raise up siege works against you. In other words, God's saying, I'm actually going to cause this last battle to happen. I'm going to be in the midst of it. It's going to happen because I said it would happen. And what God says will happen will happen. You know, there's been some interesting bloviation in the news the last few months, amen? People saying that certain things would happen and certain pieces of information would be found true. And as we go through it, some is true, some is not. God never makes mistakes. Some of the things that we read, it is absolute fact one day and the next day it's absolutely not fact. Amen? Isn't that the way our news cycles work? I'm not actually condemning those who write the news. I'm just simply saying man is incapable of being right 100% of the the time, and God is always right 100% of the time. He doesn't say things that he doesn't mean, and he doesn't mean things that he ultimately doesn't let us know. He tells us these things for a reason. You should be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground, and your speech shall be made low out of the dust, and your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. In other words, he's saying, look, it's not going to go good for national Israel for a period of time. We, we know when that period of time is. It is in that day. So it's a, it's a day that's still yet future, though Assyria is going to come. Isaiah is certainly speaking in, in essence of a typology as, as Assyria is going to attack them. But moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust. He says, if it's going to be bad for you, it's going to be worse for them. Uh, And this is where it gets really interesting when you start looking out into the future that is still ahead of us tonight. As bad as it's been for national Israel, now I think all of us are fairly well aware of the history of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been the most single persecuted group of people on the planet. For 2,000 years, they have been persecuted. We, we call it the diaspora. They were kicked out of their own land. Uh, from the time that Christ ascends to heaven, you have a series of rebellions that we'll look at in just a little bit that occurred for the first 300 years of what we call uh, the year of the Lord, Anno Domini, or the, the Christian era, or the common era, depending on which one you want to call it, uh, depending on how you date things. But in A.D., or in the time after Christ's ascension, it doesn't take the Romans but 70 years to lay siege to Jerusalem, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, push the Jewish people out, and effectively begin what did not get corrected until May 14th of 1948. And that was the Jewish people weren't even in the land that is called today Israel. Then Palestine, Transjordan, the Middle East, 
Part of it was the Ottoman Empire. It's changed historical designation for a period of nearly 2,000 years, but it didn't ever include during that period of time until 1948 a land that Theodor Herzl called Zion, a homeland for the Jewish people. But it says, moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. He says, look, your enemies are going to come against you. And you're going to mumble and stutter. You're, you're going to pay a price for your rebellion because the Jewish people have yet still, as Jesus said, look, I wanted to gather you unto myself, but you didn't want to have anything to do with me. But he's going to make good on his promise to them. He still loves the Jewish people. He still loves all people, but he's going to draw them to himself. And yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and a great noise with storm and tempest and a flame of devouring fire, the multitude of nations, all of them who fight against Ariel. Even all who fight against her, her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream in a night vision. It shall be as even when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats and he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or when a thirsty man dreams and he looks and he, he drinks and he wakes and indeed he still faints. His soul still craves and so the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Now it's interesting that it says all the nations because that's exactly what this passage means. And so it couldn't just be that it's referring only to Assyria. It's all the nations. At the time there was really only one power uh, in what we call today the Middle East, and that would have been the Assyrians. They were the ruling power of that day. Uh, and so it's speaking of something other than just Assyria. Pause, wonder, blind yourselves, and be blind. For they're drunk, but not with wine, for they stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep, has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. He's covered your heads, namely the seers. And the whole vision has become like to you the words of a book that is sealed. Blindness in part has come upon the nation Israel until, Jesus said, the times of the Gentiles will be complete. When God is done uh, with we who are not Jewish, and he's done with the age of grace, the Bible plainly declares that the Jewish people will have a level of blindness. They're, they're simply not going to see what they need to see and not hear what they need to hear. But God's not done with them. God's going to keep his promises and he's going to redeem them. I, Isaiah's son, a remnant remains, will, will be a part of that plan. And it'll be sealed in which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I can't, because it's sealed. And the book that is delivered will be to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And they'll say, I can't, I'm not literate. He, he repeats it. He's saying, look, it, it's, it's going to be so sealed in the mind of the Jewish person that it'll be right in front of them, but they won't be able to open it, they won't be able to see it, they won't be able to read it. And I very often will have people come to me, what is it that, that causes 
the, the Jewish persons, we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, and we realize all the things that were said about Messiah, this incredible depth of this picture of Messiah. One has to ask the question, it's like, how did they miss that? Well, it's because there is, there is a blindness that comes to all of us. When you're in, your, when you're in sin, anybody been blinded? You can raise your hand. Anybody been blinded by sin? I have. I've engaged in things, and you, 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 you're like, how did I get here? And then you wake up one day and you go, oh, I was blinded by the sin. And it can be anger, it can be bitterness, or it can be outright rejection of Messiah. It can be, we don't want this man to rule over us. We'd rather follow the traditions of the rabbis than follow the Messiah. When you do that, the Bible is very clear. We're going to see it in Luke's gospel, actually. When you reject the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus empowered people through salvation, believing in him, to then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you reject Jesus, you also reject the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so you can have religion all day and not possess the Holy Spirit. And so you can be really blind and at the same time really religious. You can have an outward form. Again, Jesus will address us very soon in our study through Luke's gospel. That's why he's going to say, you're like blind guides. That's why he's going to say, you're like whited sepulchers. That's why Jesus picked on the Jewish religious leadership. Not because he hated them, he loved them. He says, look, you guys are blind. And you're leading people into blindness. And therefore says the Lord, verse 13, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from me. That's the remnant, that's all that's left of the Jewish people that are now trapped inside of Jerusalem who are about to be taken captive by the Babylonians once the Assyrians get done with them. That's why it was all lip service. That's why some, some, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I've been going to church a long time. I say, well, do you know Jesus personally? Well, no, I've been going to church. I got baptized. You know, I have a study Bible. It weighs 47 pounds. I can hardly lift it. I say, well, that, that isn't the deal. The deal is, do you know Jesus personally? Have you committed your life to Christ? They'll say, well, no, but I, you know, I'm really devout, I'm religious, I'm going, that can't save you. That was the problem with the Jewish people. They were devout, they were religious, they had precision in their religion. But they were still blind because their hearts were hard. Not because they didn't have head knowledge, and not because they didn't do religious things. They were blind because their hearts were hardened. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Who do you think kept people from seeing the Messiah during the time of Jesus? It was religious men. It was the Pharisees. It was the Sadducees. It was the scribes. It was the temple system. It was the feast days. It was all those things that on the outside were actually supposed to lead the Jewish people into seeing Messiah. It's why Jesus would say, look, you're, you're worried about tithing from your spice box, but you don't know me. 
And therefore, I will again do a marvelous work among this people. I love this. You see, God doesn't give up on us like we give up on him. He hasn't towards the Jewish people, and he won't towards you either. He he doesn't give up on us. He will again do this marvelous work among his people, a marvelous work and a wonder For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. The first thing we see here is that God humbles Jerusalem, humbles the Jewish people, keeps them. We're going to see them go again towards Egypt. We're going to see them uh, trust in horses and chariots. They're going to do the wrong things, but God still loves the Jewish people, and he very specifically loves the city Jerusalem. That land is his. He gave it to them as a permanent inheritance. His only requirement was, I want you to possess it in blessedness. I want you to be obedient. I want you to love me with a whole heart, with your mind, your soul, your strength, your neighbor as yourself. I want you to do that. And if you do that, then then you possess this land. The history of Jerusalem is mind-boggling. And again, I remind you, Uh, You can look at the slides later. You don't have to try and follow along tonight, but uh, they're there for your enrichment, your growth, and so that you can study along in your Bible. You can pull them up later and go over this passage again. But in Hebrew, the name Jerusalem is actually Yerushalayim, and in Arabic is Al-Quds, and it's, it's the largest city in all of Israel to this day, and it is their capital, Uh, And most of you actually know this, that even though it is the capital of the Jewish state, it's a divided city. Uh, It is partly uh, part of the Palestinian West Bank, and it's partly the capital city of the nation Israel. And and so there's this giant wall that runs through East Jerusalem and down along the south side of the city. and, And as you're driving through it, you go in and out of this monumentally huge barrier. Why? Because that city is the most contested piece of real estate on the face of the earth. It's been fought over for almost 3,000 years. And it's still being fought over today. And yet, this, this city that today has around a million residents, actually 930,000 or so, but it's only 48.3 square miles. It's it's a tiny city, if you want to look at it. But it's also home to all three of the world's monotheistic religions. So it is the the birthplace, if you will, of Christianity. Amen? Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. It, It is the home of Judaism, though Judaism technically started in the wilderness, the tabernacle. They brought this movable tent, but the first place it became permanent was, guess where? Jerusalem. And it is also the third most holy site of Islam, because that was the concluding point of Muhammad's night journey from Medina and Mecca to the city of Jerusalem. And so when you look at it, it is, it is home to all three of the world's monotheistic religions. It's the third most holy site of Islam, but it is the most holy site. It's the most holy place on earth as far as Jews and Christians are concerned. 
And so when you travel there, you're, you're traveling through history. In the course of history, Jerusalem has been fully destroyed twice. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked during various wars 52 times. It has been captured and recaptured 44 times. Now, I don't know how much that means to most of you, but I can tell you this. There is no other city on the planet that remotely comes close to that. There are a handful where any of those things maybe have happened two or three times each, but none to where it's just continually one cycle after the other. And if you were to throw in all of the wars that have happened since 1948, you could actually throw in another dozen or so conflicts. And so the status of Jerusalem, this city that is a world heritage site today, is, is, is mind-boggling. And when you travel to Jerusalem today, you would expect, well, it's the capital city of Israel, so all of the embassies. Whenever we place an embassy in a country, generally speaking, it is normally, if we only have one, it's always in the capital. It was not until 2018 that the U.S. actually moved our embassy from Tel Aviv, where everyone else's is, to Jerusalem. We were actually the first to officially open our embassy in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's still contested. The nations of the earth are still fighting over it. The, the world is still trying to tell Israel what to do with its own land. And in 1980, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution, 478, which required the embassies to move out of Jerusalem. And so when you look at this area of the world, Klein and I have had the opportunity to go, and we actually took our picture, you can see that in the slides too, next to the sign on the new embassy. When you get there, it's like, why is no one else recognizing this? Well, it's because the history is a long running battle for control of this 35-acre temple mount. And the temple mount itself, take Jerusalem as the city, but the temple mount, this little tiny 35 acres. Now, to give you a sense of how big that is, if you were to run from Vermont to Hamilton and include our back parking lot, you've got about 27 acres. So it's about the size of this corner. That's all the bigger the Temple Mount is. And yet, on top of it, you've got these incredible buildings that were built really by, primarily by the caliphs uh, during the time directly after Muhammad supposedly writes the Quran. But underneath it, you've got an awful lot more history. You've got these giant walls that Herod the Great built. And you can sit there and you stare when you're down the plaza. How many of you have seen a picture of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall? You've seen that. When you look at that, what you're actually looking at, that is the most holy synagogue on planet Earth. To the Jewish people, that is an outdoor synagogue, much like we're outdoors right now. So when they go there, the reason that that is so holy is that is the only place on planet Earth that a Jewish person can go and get within about 100 feet of what would have been the Holy of Holies on the temple that Herod 
refashioned after the one that was destroyed that was the reason that Ezra and Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And so you have this incredible history, these 13 rows, these giant stones, some of them weighing as much as 90 tons, fit together with such precision you can't get a credit card in between them, that have been there for two and a, almost two and a half thousand years. And, and so when we think of Jerusalem, when we think of Ariel, when we think of Mount Moriah, we think of it kind of in its modern context. But it is an ancient city that is second only to Damascus, Syria, in continuous habitation throughout the history of the world. So if you take all the cities of the world and you pick out the two that have been inhabited continually, have never been abandoned, Damascus is number one in Syria, about 65 miles from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem itself. And so this noble sanctuary that you know everybody looks at, it's, it's so crazy to me that most people, when they think of Jerusalem, they think of the Temple Mount and they think of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's the newest of all of the buildings, if you want to look at it that way, um, that would make that place relevant to the world's three great monotheistic religions. It was built in the 630s. It was also destroyed and then rebuilt. And, and so as it was destroyed and rebuilt, this incredible edifice uh, that is, as far as the Muslim people are concerned, it's the Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, or the Haram al-Sharif. These buildings, you have the Dome of the Chain, and you've got four mosques up there, and the Jewish people can't even go on it, and yet it belongs to the Jewish people. And so the history for control of the Temple Mount is, puts these things in perspective for us as to why the world is still trying to cause the Jewish people to surrender control of Jerusalem. Right now when you Go on the Temple Mount if you happen to be there on a day when the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem is having a nice day and he lets either Christians or Jews actually go up there. You cannot pray. You get caught praying on the Temple Mount. It's a bad thing. I mean, the, the, the Islamic Waf, the police there, will come and very quickly escort you off the Temple Mount. And if you make a scene, it won't go good for you. And yet it's in the middle of the capital of Israel. Throughout its history, Jerusalem has been a place that the world has fought over. The world has fussed over. The world has tried to wrest control away from the Jewish people. The world has tried to snatch it away in that sense. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Sassanid rulers or the Archimedes or the Hasmoneans or... Herod's expansion, or the, any of the Roman periods of time, the Byzantine Empire, when Telena, who's the mother of Constantine, builds all these churches that today are still there. The reason the Crusaders came, most of you, you know, probably 
everyone in this congregation tonight has seen some movie that portrays the Christian crusaders as coming in and defeating Sahaladin and all of those kinds of things. You're, you're, you're familiar with the history of Jerusalem. And yet it belongs to the Jewish people and they still don't possess the totality of it themselves today. When King Hussein of Jordan in 1993 decided that he wanted to make a statement, do you know how he made a statement? By donating 180 pounds of his own gold to be hammered into 5,000 thin sheets to gild the Dome of the Rock Mosque. He wanted it to shine in the sun. It's like, you want to know what Jerusalem's about? It's about Islam. Check that out. And all the while, the Jewish people are going, but this is Zion. This is the hill of David. That's the city of David. This is our ancestors' bones are buried underneath this city. God hasn't missed any of this. God has not missed any of it. When the Crusaders came, oh, maybe there was some motivation by some of them uh, to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know that I can faithfully say that I knew the, the mind or the heart of every Crusader, but I can tell you what they did. They thought they were going to get a little less time in purgatory. They, they thought if they freed up some of the churches that were built around 400 or so A.D., that they would have a better place in God's kingdom. And so there's just been all this constant fighting. The Crusades involved Muslims and Jews and Slavs and Russians and Greek Orthodox and all these, you know, it's just insane history of political, economic, and social domination of the region that is Jerusalem. So in the final crusades, as they're defeated, in essence, by Saladin, as they're stopped at Acre, as the Knights Templar, if you guys are, you know, probably half of you in here, it's like, yeah, I love the Knights Templar. You know, these guys that walked with crosses on their chests and they went and they fought the evil Muslims. They didn't win. They lost. The Muslims pushed them back every single time. They had an occasional skirmish that they won. But there are crusader cemeteries all over Israel. One of the largest excavations in Israel right now is a crusader cemetery. Political unrest has governed the area for thousands of years. The land is rife with it. And the reason this is important as you push all the way forward to the 1967 war. And so here comes the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. 1948, they're attacked by 10 Arab nations. They win that battle. 1967, those same nations come after Israel again. They're outnumbered more than 10 to 1. Tanks and armor, it's more than 100 to 1. 
But the Jewish people actually win again. They actually push the Jordanians off of the Temple Mount. They take the Temple Mount back. Two days later, Moshe Dayan, realizing that they will have perpetual war, gives the Temple Mount back to the Jordanians and says, you guys govern it. Your mosques are up there. We'll just pray down here at the base of the wall. The whole time God's going, no, that belongs to the Jewish people. And in fact, the prophet Joel said that he's going to punish the nations of the world for what has happened to the land itself, that it was divided up and given away. And so as we look at this 6,000 years ultimately of history, you can go back about 6,000 years in the history of that particular region of the world. God's still not done with it. All the political wrangling, the, the, what's called the security wall or the security fence, the partitioning of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, the dividing up of God's land, God hasn't missed any of it. And so from God's perspective, he's just saying, these are the reasons that I'm actually going to send Jesus back to the earth because the final battle, the battle that we call the battle of Armageddon, is to deliver the Jewish people into their final inheritance. That's what it's for. And so Isaiah sees that. He gets a glimpse of it. That's why Zechariah 12 says, I will pour out on the spirit of the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. You can see that in Zechariah 12. And they will mourn him as one who mourns his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves the firstborn. For in that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. The mourning like there was in Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo. And so Zechariah gives us some insight. He says, look, everybody should care about what's going on in Jerusalem. Because God cares about what's going on in Jerusalem. Because that land is God's land. He gave it to the Jewish people. And he intends to make sure they get to inherit it. That final battle is the battle that's foretold here in Isaiah's prophecy. It's the battle of Armageddon. He's looking all the way forward. Zechariah will come along and fill in those details in chapters 12 through 14 of Zechariah's prophecy. But it really points us towards what we would look at as this time of tribulation that, that expands all the way from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19 where God is dealing with the nations of the world. He's saying, look, You've had your time. You've had grace. You can be saved. I've allowed you to know me personally. But now I'm going to save my people. I'm going to take those final steps in Abraham's covenant and make sure that they are a great nation. I'm going to fulfill everything that I said about them. And so the winepress of God's wrath will finally be poured out, just as it says in Revelation 14. The kings of the earth, exactly as it says in Revelation 16, are going to rise up against national Israel. 
And then finally you get to Revelation chapter 19. And it says there, a picture that is still out. Remember, each time that Zechariah speaks and Isaiah speaks and Daniel spoke, he's using that same phrase, in that day, that final day, when God says, enough. I'm going to make good on all of my promises. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. Anybody waiting for that day when Jesus comes again? I am. I am. It, the heavens are going to open and Jesus is coming again. Except when he comes the second time, he's not coming as a lamb to be slaughtered again. And your Bible says that very clearly. And behold, a white horse and he who sat on him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and notice this makes war. Now he comes back as the lion, and we'll see him as the lion as we continue our journey through these next several chapters. His eyes were like a flame of fire, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's because that blood's going to come from the battle of Armageddon. He himself is going to go. He's going to tread out the winepress, and you can see it in the remainder there of chapter 19. And his name, interestingly enough, and this is one of the reasons we know that this is Jesus, his name is called the Word of God. Amen? Jesus is the Word. He is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So this one who rides back on the white horse, who brings the armies of heaven with him, is none other than King Jesus. And he's not coming back to, to shed uh, another version of God's grace. He's coming to finally deal with mankind's rebellion and their mistreatment of national Israel. He has his robe, and on his thigh his name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's only one of those, amen? His name's Jesus. He's finally going to take the beast by the neck and throw him into the pit. Can't wait. He can keep his COVID when he goes in. <laughs> amen? For all that's going to, like the, amen. Take that with you where that belongs the enemy is gonna vanish before the king of kings and the lord of lords but israel's heart was far from god and as this chapter wraps up it isn't going to be the muslim control of the temple mount that's going to matter it isn't going to be the un's dictates to try and pin Israel into indefensible borders. That's not going to matter. Jesus isn't going to go, oh man, I didn't know that you had a true treaty. You know, the king of kings is not going to come back from heaven. Wow, I'm really sorry. I had no idea there were sovereign nations around. He is the deed holder to the entirety of the earth. Amen? So he's going to come back and square all that away. And so Isaiah sees this time. But what he also sees is the children of Israel were not yet ready for that time to come. Verse 15 in the remainder of the chapter says this, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. Those who say, who sees us? Who knows us? God looks through all of mankind's wranglings. 
he, he knows all of the things that go on in the world of politics every day. Somebody asked me, well, how come you, you, know, you don't really get all riled up about politics? Because I know King Jesus, and he has the final word on all things. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and I trust him. So I, I don't really wander around going, you know, well, I, I don't know how we can get over this. The Congress voted, or the Supreme Court voted, or we've got a constitutional amendment that says this. I don't actually concern myself too much with those things. Those are temporal things. Now, I'm grateful for our Supreme Court. I'm grateful for our system of government. I'm grateful for our Constitution. I'm very thankful for the freedoms we have. But I do not rest and trust in those things. I rest and trust in the Lord God Most High. Amen? The children of Israel were not resting and trusting in the Lord. They're going to go right back to resting and trusting in politics, specifically. A treaty with Egypt to help fight Assyria. We're going to see that very shortly. Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Shall the thing that is made say to him who made it, He did not make me. This is nuts. But isn't this how the world views these things? The world is going, oh, well, you Christians. No, we're actually the ones that have the answers. It's the world that doesn't have the answers. I've got the answers. I know in whom I have believed, and he is able. He's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. Shall the thing form say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, the fruitful field esteemed as a forest? For in that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book. What do you think that's saying? That one day the truth, the word of God, the words of the book, will be revealed in Jerusalem to the Jewish people. That the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And the humble also shall increase in their joy in the Lord. And the poor among the men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, they're going to come to faith in the Lord Jesus. They're going to get the message of the book. You see, the message of the book, the story of redemption actually began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? It's only codified, it's only finally completed when Jesus comes, but it's in view in, in the garden. That's why God didn't just simply make a new Adam and Eve. That's what I would have done. That's what you would have done. I would have just gone, man, you guys are a mess. I'm getting me two new ones. There's more dirt, I can make more people. But God goes, I love you, I made you, I love you. I want to redeem you back. This sin is going to cost you something, though. But I love you so much that I'm not going to cast you off. I'm going to continue to seek after you. The humble shall increase in their joy for the Lord. The poor among shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. Anybody looking forward to that day? When Satan himself is finally brought to nothing. Because right now, he, he is something. 
but he's still nothing compared to King Jesus. And the scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make the man an offender by word. And lay a snare for him who reproves at the gate. And turn aside the just by empty words. And therefore says the Lord. Who redeemed Abraham. Amen. I would have gotten rid of Abraham too. The whole thing with, oh, she's not really my wife. It's like, who wants a liar as one of your founding fathers? But God redeemed Abraham. Concerning the house of Jacob, his name, notice it's Jacob here in this passage. It means schemer or heel catcher. Jacob shall not know to be ashamed, nor shall his face grow pale. Well, he had reason to be ashamed, and he had reason for his face to be pale, but that's how good God is. And when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Amen? Amen. That same hallowing that Jesus talked about. And hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding. Anybody thankful for that? who erred in spirit but will finally come. You, 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 you didn't have a clue. And Jesus spoke into your life the truth of the gospel. And you believed, you received that good news. And those who complained, I love this, will learn doctrine. Israel went through all these outward forms. They, they thought they alone knew God. But their hearts were far from the Lord. But that didn't mean that the Lord turned his back on them. He's been reaching out. He's been crying out to the Jewish people. He's been appealing to them. Saving them one at a time. It's amazing when you think of how difficult it is in Israel to be part of a messianic congregation. And I say that because there's only one type of Christian. That's Christian Christians. Amen? Amen. But you can be a Jewish Christian. That comes at a very high cost in Israel. Abandoned by your family, disowned. But still people are saved. Congregations are flourishing. The Jewish people had traded their blessings for a few moments of temporal pleasure and peace. And God said, even though you did that, you still have a glorious future in me if you'll just simply believe. The same is true for us. So why do we love the nation Israel? Why do we love Jerusalem? Because God loves the nation Israel and God loves Jerusalem and he has a plan for their future. And so we should have the same heart that God has. We're to love the things he loves and to hate the things he hates. He doesn't hate people, he hates sin. And so we pray continually for the peace of Jerusalem because one day Jerusalem is going to see Messiah. The only difference between 
us now and them then is that we've already seen him, we've already met him, we already know him. But one day when those blinders come off, they're going to meet King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and we're going to close in prayer. If you're watching online, we have pastors available to pray with you. If you're here tonight, you don't know the Lord Jesus. We have an actual page there on the app, and you can go there. It's so cool, thanks to those that have made it possible, but it's, it's our no page. So it's ccsouthbay.org forward slash no, and you can see the steps of just simply committing your life to Christ. It's as simple as ABC. Admit you're a sinner. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord, you'll be saved. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that in all of this craziness in our world, you're still in control. You haven't lost a thing, God. You're still winning the war. And in the end, the enemy is going to be cast into the lake of fire. We can't wait for that day. And in the meantime, we pray tonight for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the blindness that is in part come upon the Jewish people. Lord, would you reveal yourself to the Jewish people? Would you reveal yourself to those that are trapped in Islam, those who are Hindu and Buddhist? Lord, we pray for those that are wandering around worshiping animals and rocks and trees. Father, you are the true King, and Jesus, you're the only Savior, and so we confess that Jesus is Lord, and we pray, God, that you would reach out and save the lost. Even through these feeble attempts to do these things online, God, we ask that you'd use uh, even these broadcasts, Lord, to win people for the cause of the King, to the Savior Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the peace that we have in Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.